0: The Christian Ministry, with an Inquiry into the Causes of its Inefficiency, by Charles Bridges. Part 2, General Causes of the Want of Success in the Christian Ministry, Continued. Chapter 4, The Power of Satan, a Main Hindrance to Ministerial Success. The active power and unsearchable subtlety of Satan are always directed against the Christian ministry as the engine, mighty through God, to the pulling down of his strongholds. This is his grand point of attack upon the Redeemer's kingdom. Indeed, we could scarcely expect that the devouring lion would quietly submit to have his prey wrested from his teeth, or that the strong man armed would resign his spoils without a severe conflict the nature and extent of his unceasing opposition are less difficult to conceive than accurately to define. It meets us, however, in every sphere. In the world, his influence is palpable, in a general listless inattention to the word of God, and an immediate transition from thence into the very vortex of the world, in the awful blindness of men to the glory of the Savior in their thoughtless unconcern for eternity, and in his captivating dominion over such vast multitudes, unable to deliver their souls, or to say, is there not a lie in my right hand? The course of this world, or what is elsewhere called the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life, is distinctly identified with the power of the Spirit which now worketh in the children of disobedience. The same enemy stirs up the natural enmity of the heart to the followers of Christ and employs with incessant malignity tongues, pens, and influence against the cause of God, thus illustrating and sustaining his scriptural character as the Prince and the God of this world, the Father of lies, the old serpent which deceiveth the whole world. In the professing Church, This restless enemy works his artful leaven with all deceivableness of unrighteousness, covering his spiritual wiles with some new and pleasing doctrines, adapted to the taste of the times, and thus poisoning the bread of life by the adulteration of man's devices. His subtlety is peculiarly marked in the accommodation of the forms of deception to the different temperaments of his victims— Carnal security suits with the world and succeeds to the utmost of his desires in keeping his goods in peace. But such schemes would be ineffectual with a nominal recognition of serious religion. In the church, he transforms himself into an angel of light, exhibiting either the attractive idol of self righteousness or that most inveterate form of antichrist. The Dependence on the Profession of a Pure Doctrine The Apostle intimates that the general symptoms of ministerial ineffectiveness may be traced to this source, and indeed his active influence is discoverable in every point of detail. The explanation of the growth of the tares among the wheat is, an enemy hath done this, the serpent that beguiled Eve through his subtlety still corrupts the minds of the weak from the simplicity that is in Christ. The ministerial hindrances from divisions and want of love among professors and the successful opposition sometimes made to schemes of ministerial usefulness are traced to the secret operation of the same active cause. The hypocrisy of professors within the church or their apostasy from her communion, all the successive vicissitudes of her history, all the drawbacks to the full energies of our work, flow from this fountain of evil, continually sending forth bitter waters. Individual experience discloses the constant exercise of the same agency. To this source, the Christian traces his subtle workings of unbelief, his wanderings of heart and prayer, his occasional indulgence of self-confidence, spiritual pride and worldliness, the injection of blasphemous thoughts, the power of evil tempers, and the general commission of sin, all which, according to their prevalency, are positive hindrances to the holy and blessed influence of our labors. The appalling conflict between the powers of darkness and light is therefore exhibited before us, the God of this world blinding the eyes of them that believe not, while the ministry of the gospel exhibits Christ Jesus the Lord as the medium, by which God, who commandeth the light to shine out of darkness, shines into the hearts of his people with the revelation of his glory." Thus, while the active agency of the evil spirit by his direct and instrumental operation is counteracting the progress of our work, we may be said, indeed, to wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Chapter 5 Local Hindrances to Ministerial Success We have already, incidentally, glanced at some of the main drawbacks upon the Christian ministry, and others, in a more minute detail, will hereafter come under consideration. Our present business is with those impediments that depend not so much upon the personal or official character of the minister— as upon extrinsic causes connected with the circumstances of his individual sphere. Thus, a town presents many hindrances which, in the same degree, do not belong to the superintendence of a country parish. The moral impossibility of penetrating the dense mass of the population and of insulating the several component parts originates a want of that personal application of the word to individual consciences which is so powerfully effective for the great purpose of the pulpit. The course also of public instruction is necessarily of a more general complexion. The character and exercises of the minister's own mind may indeed give an individual mold to his system but his want of particular acquaintance with his people must proportionably preclude the adaptation of his ministry to the specialties of their respective cases. Local habits and circumstances also tend materially to counteract the direct power of our work. Large congregated bodies, as in manufacturing districts, are usually most corrupting pests, hand joining in hand and every man helping his neighbor in the way of sin, and saying to his brother, be of good courage. Then again, the state of trade in the parish, the population unemployed or uncivilized or distressed, these are matters that often affect our results. There are also local hindrances connected with the constitution of the ministry. A co-partnership in the sacred work often excites most painfully the Corinthian heresy of a party spirit among the people. Mutual jealousies are fomented, which it is well if they do not reach the bosom of the laborers themselves. Men are puffed up for one against another. They learn to glory in men, and with the highest advantages of a spiritual administration, Their pastors are constrained still to speak unto them, not as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ, walking as men. The rise and progress of various heresies may also be strengthened by local combinations not immediately under our control. The want of insight into the several departments of the flock in an extensive sphere gives occasion for the watchful enemy to cast in his leaven, which, with a deadly influence, threatens to leaven the whole lump. The ministrations of some of the most eminent servants of God have suffered severely from this source, though it was probably as needful a trial of faith, patience, and humility in the midst of their successful energy as was the thorn in the flesh to the great apostle to save him from the impending danger of being exalted above measure. Other hindrances also of this local character belong more immediately to the ministry of the establishment and often act unfavorably even upon faithful and laborious exertions. The ground may have been preoccupied by one or more of the organized systems of dissent, recognizing the grand principles of the gospel, but under a form in many particulars opposed to the framework of our own system. This, under the most favorable circumstances, must be regarded as an evil, inasmuch as the want of Christian unity diminishes proportionably from the native power of the gospel. Even if the respective ministers are men of forbearance and brotherly love— and in the true spirit of their commission lay far more stress upon their points of agreement than upon their points of difference, it is not likely that the same spirit should universally spread through their congregations. And the defect of this mutual forbearance, often called forth by comparative trifles, reminds us, in its baneful consequences, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. The fruitful laborer may also find many hindrances rooted in the soil before it passed under his hands for cultivation. The rank and luxuriant weed of profession may have choked the growth of much that might otherwise have sprung up with a prospect of bearing fruit unto perfection. He may suffer also from the effects of prejudice superadded to the natural enmity to the gospel, arising from the inexperience, imprudence, or inconsistency of his predecessor. Lay influence also often hangs a weight upon the effectiveness of the work. Particular individuals in the parish, in the lowest or even the highest ranks, are a frequent bar to usefulness. The contempt also of the Sabbath, the predominant character of pleasure, dissipation, and the general inattention or opposition to religion in the heads of the parish, too often present a hostile front to our course of effort and instruction. And where the influence of the higher classes is of a less decided character, or even where it is exercised on the side of the church, yet it is rarely unattended with material drawbacks. The respect for religion and for the ordinances of God does not always regulate the arrangements of the house, the general style of appearance, or the deportment of the lower numbers of the household. It may also be not wholly divested of a love of power, a reluctance to be controlled by spiritual restraints, or to depart from the indulgent course of neutrality when a more full sway of influence on the side of the gospel might incur inconvenience or reproach. Now, these hindrances and their origin are irrespective of personal responsibility, but most detrimental in their consequences. It would be obviously impossible to prescribe any specific course of procedure applicable to every form of resistance. The general principles of the ministry— well-directed against the several points of attack, will be, however, of immense service in this warfare. The combined power of the diligence of faith, the meekness of wisdom, and the patience of hope, if they do not wholly counteract the evil, will materially retard its aggressive operation. Nor are the difficulties attached to extensive spheres insurmountable. Much may be done, much has been done, by bending general systems to more minute applications. Methodized habits have been more effective under the greatest disadvantages than an undisciplined course of exercise, assisted by much local superiority. District systems of visiting have enabled laborious ministers to pass over a wide extent of ground with far more particularity and fruitfulness. And above all, the wise superintendence of the great head of the church has been signally displayed in a suitable adaptation of his chosen instruments for their specific work. Men are not all alike qualified for all situations. But he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand appoints unto each its place in the spiritual firmament, as shall be most suited to the honor of his name, for the purpose of his will, and for the edification of his church." The hindrances, however, to which we have alluded, must impede our progress, so that our success will often consist not so much in any prominent outward change in our sphere as in the silent and effectual opposition to the current of evil, in the raising up of a band of witnesses to cooperate with us in our labor, and in the steady perseverance with which the ground is maintained in the midst of conflict and discouragement. CHAPTER 6. THE WANT OF A DIVINE CALL, A MAIN CAUSE OF FAILURE IN THE CHRISTIAN MINISTRY. WE MAY SOMETIMES TRACE MINISTERIAL FAILURE TO THE VERY THRESHOLD OF THE ENTRANCE INTO THE WORK. WAS THE CALL TO THE SACRED OFFICE CLEAR IN THE ORDER OF THE CHURCH AND ACCORDING TO THE WILL OF GOD? THIS QUESTION BEARS WITH VAST IMPORTANCE UPON THE SUBJECT. Where the call is manifest, the promise is assured. But if we run unsent, our labors must prove unblessed. Many, we fear, have never exercised their minds upon this inquiry. But do not we see the standing ordinance of the church written upon their unfruitful ministrations? I sent them not, nor commanded them. Therefore they shall not profit this people at all, saith the Lord." The blast was not that their doctrine was unsound, but that they preached unsent. Under the old dispensation, intrusion into the priestly office was marked as the most dangerous presumption. Nor is it a less direct act of usurpation to take unwarranted authority in the Church of Christ. Our great head himself appeared with delegated, not with self-commissioned authority, Prophetically, he had declared his call to his great work. It was manifested to the world at the commencement, as well as during the course of his public ministry. Often did he appeal to it as the credentials of his commission. Those who entered into the fold without his authority he stamps as thieves and robbers, and he only who entered in by the door of his divine commission was the shepherd of the sheep. The scriptural terms of ordination imply a direct controlling influence upon the agents. The various illustrations also of the office tend to the same point. We cannot conceive of a herald, an ambassador, a steward, a watchman, a messenger, an angel with self-constituted authority. The apostle asks, with regard to the first of these, how shall they preach except they be sent? They may indeed preach without omission, but not as the messengers of God. No one could be an ambassador except he be charged expressly with instructions from his sovereign. Else would he deliver the fruit of his own brain, not his sovereign's will and commands. Nor can anyone legitimately come in the name of God to confirm the revelations of his will, except by his own express appointment. God will seal his own ordinances, but not man's usurpation. As to the entrance to the sacred function, having no extraordinary commission, we do not expect an immediate and extraordinary call. Our authority is derived conjointly from God and from the church, that is, originally from God, confirmed through the medium of the church. The external call is a commission received from and recognized by the church, according to the sacred and primitive order, not indeed qualifying the minister, but accrediting him, whom God had internally and suitably qualified. This call communicates, therefore, only official authority. The internal call is the voice and power of the Holy Ghost, directing the will and the judgment and conveying personal qualifications. Both calls, however, though essentially distinct in their character and source, are indispensable for the exercise of our commission. Both, therefore, unite in his government, who is not the author of confusion but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints, and whose unction of a rational, holy, and orderly character harmoniously combines with the constituted appointment of his will. How plainly do the superscriptions of St. Paul's epistles, with one or two exceptions, stamp his instructions to the churches with the seal of his heavenly commission? He is never weary of inculcating on us this truth, that the will of God is the sole rule of any man's call, and the only gate by which he can enter into the ministry. The mission is divine in its fountain and institution, human in its channel and way of communication. It is therefore in this combined authority that we serve God with our spirit and the gospel of his Son, that we have the confidence that he will stand by us and our own work, and that we thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled us, for that he counted us faithful, putting us into the ministry. The external call, though necessary and authoritative in its character, yet as being the mere delegation of man, is evidently not of itself a sufficient warrant for our work. The inward call is the presumptive ground on which our church delegates her authorized commission. Nothing can be more explicit than her solemn question to us, do you trust that you are inwardly moved by the Holy Ghost to take upon you this office? Quote, certainly, as Bishop Burnett remarks with his usual seriousness, the answer that is made to this ought to be well considered. For if any says, I trust so, that yet knows nothing of any such motion and can give no account of it, he lies to the Holy Ghost and makes his first approach to the altar with a lie in his mouth, and that not to men, but to God. End quote. Now, if there be any meaning in terms as illustrative of things, an inward movement by the Holy Ghost must imply his influence upon the heart, not indeed manifested by any enthusiastic impulse, but enlightening the heart under a deep impression of the worth of souls, constraining the soul by the love of Christ to spend and be spent for him, and directing the conscience to a sober, searching self-inquiry, to a daily study of the word, to fervent prayer and reference to this great matter, and to a careful observation of the providential indications of our master's will. However, quote, that which no man ought to do, almost every man does in making himself the sovereign judge of his own calling, and quote, Kenzel. A misguided bias, constitutional propensity, or worldly considerations often perplex the path and obscure the tokens of the divine guidance. May a man presume that he is thus inwardly moved by the Holy Ghost because his inclination leads him to the ministry, or he has been educated for it, or he is thrust into it by the wishes of friends, or even by parental counsel or authority? It would indeed open a wide door for enthusiasm to suppose that a bias of the mind was a sufficient warrant for this most solemn undertaking. Motives and feelings, individual character and capacities are so often viewed through the medium of self-complacency that we are forcibly reminded of the sacred aphorism, he that trusteth to his own heart is a fool. What would survive the fervor of the bias beside the melancholy exhibition of an unfurnished mind, or such a low standard of ministerial obligation as would bring the office into utter contempt? Nor must we admit parental interference in the choice of a work that wholly depends upon what Burnett calls a divine vocation. Quote, the National Church, as has been truly and feelingly stated by one who had a deep personal interest in the subject, groans and bleeds from the crown of its head to the sole of its feet, from the daily intrusion of unworthy men into the ministry, quote, from this source. Lee Richmond, The Will of Man Must Be in Subserviency, not in forwardness, on a point so deeply connected with the interests of the church, and where the will of God should govern the soul and ultimate decision quote, Happy that person who can say with the apostle that it is through the will of God, and not through his own or that of his parents that he is in the sacred ministry Kensel. Nor should personal and consistent piety, irrespective of other considerations, form our determination. Quote, no man, indeed, as Bishop Burnett remarks, ought to think of this profession unless he feels within himself a love to religion, with a zeal for it, and an internal true piety, which is chiefly kept up by secret prayer in reading the Scriptures. As long as these things are a man's burden, they are infallible indices that he has no inward vocation nor notion of the Holy Spirit to undertake it. End quote. Yet, on the other hand, every Christian is not ordained to be a minister. The examples of Aquila and Priscilla, and the various helpers of the primitive church called over by name in the apostolical salutations, clearly prove that devotedness to the cause of God is a component and acceptable part of Christian obligation. In this wide field of service, laymen may exhibit the spirit of the ministry in perfect consistency with their secular employ, and without an unauthorized intrusion upon the express commission of the sacred office, the entrance into which, without a divine call, the greatest talents, the most elevated spirituality— and the most sincere intentions cannot justify. The two grand combining requisites for this divine vocation may be determined to be a desire and a fitness for the office. Number one, the desire of the work was a prominent feature in the ministerial character and qualifications of Christ. While in the bosom of the Father, and in the anticipation of his work, his delights were with the sons of men. When he cometh into the world, for the accomplishment of his work, the same earnest desire distinguished him. On one occasion of bodily need he told his disciples that he had meat to eat that they knew not of, bidding them to understand that his delight in his Father's work was to him more than his necessary food. The Apostle strongly marks a constraining desire as a primary ministerial qualification, something far beyond the general Christian desire to promote the glory of God, a special kindling within, in character, if not in intensity, like the burning fire shut up in the prophet's bosom, and overcoming his determination to go back from the service of his God. This constraint rises above all difficulties— takes pleasure in sacrifices for the work's sake, and quickens to a readiness of mind that, were it not restrained by conscious unfitness and unworthiness, would savor of presumption. The sense of defilement almost shuts the mouth, but the sense of mercy fills the heart, and it cannot stay. The work is more desirable than the highest earthly honors, so that even under the most desponding anticipations it cannot be relinquished. This desire will be most enlivening when the mind is most spiritual, and will connect the communication of the blessing with ardent prayers for a large reciprocal benefit. It should also be a considerate desire, the result of matured calculation of the cost. This, we fear, has been sometimes lost sight of in the exchange of secular professions, more especially the army and navy, for the service of the altar. But seldom is the declaration more important, He that believeth shall not make haste. Waiting time is of the utmost moment to scrutinize the real principles of the heart, which have dictated an abandonment of the calling originally, as it was presumed, suggested by the providence of God, and in which ordinarily it is the will of God that we should abide. The relinquishment of a secular calling for the sacred office can never be justified en foro conscientiae, or be productive of ultimate advantage, either to the individual or to the church, without the clearest providential light the most watchful caution against the influence of natural inclination as the interpreter of providence, the most earnest and persevering prayer, and the most satisfactory evidence of abstraction from all motives of personal ease, indulgence, or interest. Under these circumstances, where the call is not evidently of God, a due contemplation of the difficulties and prospect— combined with a trembling sense of his own weakness, will probably direct the mind of the candidate to some less responsible undertaking. This inconsiderate desire will gradually weaken and die away. Or, if it should act presumptuously in pushing forward to the work, it will issue, unless the Lord should open his eyes, in bitter and unavailing fruits of repentance. It must also be a disinterested desire. Pure intention is indispensable to the meanest service in the Lord's work. Much more important, therefore, is it, that our choice of the service of his sanctuary should be uninfluenced by the love of literature, or the opportunities of indulgent recreation, that we should guard against desires of professional elevation, that we should be divested of the selfish motives of esteem, respectability, or worldly comfort, that we should seek not great things for ourselves, that we should aim at nothing but souls, rather willing to win one to Christ than a world to ourselves, and that we should exhibit a devoted consecration of all our talents to the service of God. Quote, He who is called to instruct souls, said Bernard, is called of God, and not by his own ambition. And what is this called but an inward incentive of love soliciting us to be zealous for the salvation of our brethren? So often as he who is engaged in preaching the word shall fill his inward man to be excited with divine affections, so often let him assure himself that God is there and that he is invited by him to seek the good of souls." To the same purpose, Kenzel observes, One of the most certain marks of the divine call is where it is the purpose of a man's heart to live, to labor, and to possess nothing but for Jesus Christ and his church. Where the heart is freed from selfishness and purely acted upon by the will of God and the readiness to labor for him, there is much encouragement to advance toward this holy function. The importance and purity of this desire are strongly marked as the grand qualifications to feed the flock of God. If I do this thing willingly, says the apostle, I have a reward. Quote, But if you do not feel in yourselves, as the eloquent Massillon addresses his clergy, a desire of being employed as the ambassadors of God, judge ye yourselves whether ye are called into the Lord's vineyard. God implants a love in the heart for the service to which he calls. And better would it have been for you to have felt that it was not the ministry for which you were intended, than that you should possess a want of inclination for the performance of its duties. It is not necessary that a voice from heaven should say to you in secret, The Lord hath not sent you. Your judgment, enforced by the dictates of your conscience, tells you so. End quote. Number 2. But to this desire must be added a competent measure of ministerial gifts. Our Lord was furnished with this evidence of his call and endowment for his work. The Apostle distinctly connects this ability with our commission, which he directs to be consigned not to faithful men generally, but to those among them which shall be able to teach others also. But as this subject has already come before us, we shall only observe that the ability for the sacred office is very distinct from natural talent, or the wisdom and learning of this world. These, though subordinately most useful and important, are nowhere mentioned as constituting the essentials of ministerial qualifications. A man of ordinary natural gifts under divine teaching may be able to pray to preach the gospel, to administer the sacraments, and to save immortal souls. And such a one has a far better claim to the title of a minister of Christ than an erudite scholar or accomplished theologian destitute of spiritual qualifications. In directing the ignorant in the way of heaven, in awakening the careless and insensible, in subduing the rebellious in dealing with the entanglements of tempted consciences, how inefficient would be all the force of philosophical or historical illustration. One simple declaration of the gospel, on the other hand, would, with the Lord's blessing, remove the darkness, melt away the stubbornness, and bring in all the consolation of heavenly light and peace. We doubt not, but the true Christian minister— well furnished with human learning, without casting away this valuable gift, yet makes far more use of, and estimates at a far higher value, that learning which he has obtained in the secret place of the Most High. This is the fitness mainly, though not exclusively, to be sought for. Let the novitiate be found in the daily habit of prayer, in the conscientious improvement of his natural gifts, in a diligent increase of his intellectual as well as spiritual stores, and he will find the promise made good, whosoever hath to him shall be given, and he shall have more abundantly. In this course, he may largely encourage his desire to be duly admitted into the sacred office, soberly anticipating the results according to the will and word of God but not regarding them as the warrant of his preparation or desire for the work. So important, however, is the combination of desire and capacity that neither, separated from the other, can be deemed sufficient. The desire, though correctly answering to the standard of intensity, consideration, and purity, does not of itself attest a divine vocation. We cannot suppose the Lord to send unqualified laborers, however willing, into his vineyard. And none but he can qualify them. The servant of God, therefore, may be called to yield his most ardent wishes in the conscious ability to set forth the truth in an intelligent and effective form. Yet may he, in this self renouncing sacrifice, console himself with the most gracious acceptance of his desires though his services be not required. Nor will the richest furniture of ministerial gifts, without a special desire and interest in the work, though it may qualify the Christian for important usefulness as a helper of the church, evidence a movement by the Holy Ghost for this high and important service. But when the Lord constrains the heart of his servant with a desire, and furnishes him with competent ability, When in the clear apprehension of the labor, pain, and difficulty of the work, he can yet say, none of these things move me, then may he seek to be set apart by the instrumentality of man, having the witness within him that he has been called by God. And such a call will be duly authorized by the presbyters of the church, and will doubtless be yet more clearly attested by the divine blessing upon his work. The providence of God, as we have before hinted, will probably afford more or less confirmation of this call. For this is the wheel within a wheel, moving in harmonious conjunction, but in direct subserviency to his purposes respecting his church. If, therefore, these arrangements direct the choice of a secular calling, much more may we expect him thus to guide the inward call to his own work, a matter so deeply connected with the interests of his kingdom. The providential disposing, therefore, of a person's circumstances, thoughts, inclinations, and studies to this main end, the disappointment of his plans for a future course in life, the unexpected and repeated closing up of worldly avenues, unlooked for openings in the church in the way of usefulness, not of preferment, some particular crisis in the individual sphere, some change or influence of family circumstances. One or more of these may prove the word behind him saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. Direction, however, will probably be given rather in opposition to indulgence of a constitutional propensity, damping a sanguine temperament and rousing an indolent habit wise and tender discipline will form the pliable spirit, ready to discern and follow our Father's will. The Lord usually trains His servants to waiting and to much conflict in their way to His immediate service. But in humble, patient confidence, their path will be as the shining light." The judgment of Christian friends, and specially of experienced ministers, might be useful in assuring the mind whether or not the desire for the work be the impulse of feeling rather than of principle, and the capacity be self-deceiving presumption. The late pious and learned Dr. Leland took this satisfactory view of his own case. Quote, God has been graciously pleased, said he, to give me some talents which seem capable of being improved to the edification of the church. He hath disposed and inclined my heart to a willingness to take upon me the sacred ministry, and that, not from worldly, carnal ends and views, but from a sincere intention and desire of employing the talents he has given me in promoting the salvation of souls, and serving the interests of truth, piety, and righteousness in the world." and I have been encouraged by the judgment and approbation of several learned and pious ministers, who, after a diligent course of trials carried on for a considerable time, judged me to be properly qualified for that sacred office and animated me to undertake it. Upon seriously weighing all these things, I cannot but think I have a clear call to the work of the ministry— and I verily believe that, if I rejected it, I should sin against God, grieve many of his people, counteract the designs of divine providence towards me, and alienate the talents he has given me to other purposes than those for which they seem to have been intended. Quote. The importance of this discussion will be generally allowed. To labor in the dark without an assured commission— greatly obscures the warrant of faith in the divine engagements. And the minister, unable to avail himself of heavenly support, feels his hands hang down and his knees feeble in his work. On the other hand, the confidence that he is acting in obedience to the call of God, that he is in his work and in his way, nerves him in the midst of all difficulty, and under a sense of his responsible obligations, with almighty strength. Yet under no circumstances is there a warranted ground for distress in a simple consecration to the service of God. Let the minister, in seasons of anxiety, cast himself upon the mercy of God, and doubt not of acceptance. But in closing our consideration of this subject, we cannot forget that the inward call has not always accompanied the public investment with ministerial authority. With many of us, it is a painful recollection that we entered into the sacred office with hearts unenlightened with Christian doctrine and unimpressed with ministerial obligations. Yet let the remembrance of this sin be humiliation not in despondency. Let us be afflicted indeed for our unhallowed approach to the sacred altar, yet not swallowed up with overmuch sorrow. There is with our gracious God mercy for this as well as for any other sin, and we shall not apply to him for it in vain. Doubtless we should bear this sin in special remembrance to the end of our days, both as an occasion of magnifying the grace of God and as an incentive to redoubled exertions throughout our future course. In order to generate in our hearts this deepened contrition, it will be well to bring frequently before our minds, and especially at the annual return of the season of our ordination, the vows which we then took upon us, and in a new perception of their responsibility, to consecrate ourselves to God afresh, with a full determination of heart, through grace, to fulfill them. Thus receiving, as it were, a second commission, with shame and self-reproach, and yet with thankfulness, we shall be given to it. We shall have an evidence in our own souls that, though at the time of ordination we were not moved by the Holy Ghost, we are so now and if our conscience bear witness to us that we are now cordially renouncing whatever is inconsistent with our high and heavenly calling, we need not doubt of God's merciful acceptance in all our labors of love and, in confirmation of his own word, of a blessing to be conferred also on our own souls, according to our labor. This audio recording was read by Michael Ives. I hope you found it enlightening and edifying. Visit westportexperiment.com for more audio resources, and where I write about parish missions, the care of souls, and all things reformed.